0: Hey guys, welcome to another week of the Neighbor Series here at Three Circle Church. You know, Mr. Rogers, he really made a big difference in this world. He had a huge impact. It's amazing that week after week in our live uh, gatherings at all of our campuses, when the music plays, uh, everyone sings along because it was iconic. The red cardigan, uh, the throwing the one shoe uh, from one hand to another. But really what was more iconic than anything was Mr. Rogers' kindness. And the way he would look into that camera week after week and tell everyone, basically, that he wanted to be their neighbor. And it didn't matter who they were or what their background was. Every kid in every corner of the world, no matter if they were rich or poor, black or white, Asian or Indian, it didn't matter where you were from, it didn't matter what flag was flying over your country, Mr. Rogers wanted to be your neighbor. And you know what? That has been kind of a springboard for us to talk about one of the most beloved parables in the Bible. Jesus was answering the question of a scribe, a lawyer one day, and He told the parable that we're looking at week after week after week. And what we're doing is every week we go back into the parable we read the whole thing and we come at it from a different angle. So we're going to do that again today in week four. And we're going to see today that there's, there's still more for us to get out of this parable. So the reason we're going to do six total weeks on it is because we don't, we don't want to miss anything. I don't want you to miss anything that this amazing parable has. Now, again, let me just remind you, when Jesus told a parable, it was a story that He made up, that He uh, designed to teach us lessons. So we're doing what we should do with a parable we should uh, go in and dig around in it and mine, if you will, out the diamonds that are, that are buried inside of it because uh, there's a lot of truth there for us to learn. So today, once again, we're going to see the Bible teach us how to be neighbors. And, and remember this, this big point before we get started. Remember that the point of the Good Samaritan story was not to teach us how to identify our neighbors. It was to teach us how to be a neighbor. Welcome to week four of the Neighbor Series. All right, if you have your Bibles uh, close to you, wherever you might be, or your device, really cool time that we live in now where we can literally have the Bible on our phones, on our tablets, or uh, a a physical Bible in our hands. What we're looking for is content, not the means by which you get it. So all of those things are totally fine. So if you'll grab those right now, we're going to go to the Gospel of Luke, and we're just going to look at this story again. We're going to keep reading it. So today we're going to go to Luke 10 again, beginning in verse 25, and here's what it says. And behold... A lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to, in- to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Verse 30, Jesus replied, Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, Jesus asked, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now... Let's begin to unpack this story again and see what we need to learn today. So a few years back, I read an incredible article from Desiring God. It was written by a great theologian and writer, John Bloom. And it was about the Good Samaritan story. And I said then when I read it, it was so great, it was so powerful. I thought, man, I have got to share this with our church family. And so now that we're teaching the Good Samaritan story, uh, John Bloom and his writing and desiring God on this particular angle really, really inspired what I'm going to teach you today. And in fact, here is one of his incredible quotes from his article. He said this, "...the neighbor we're called to love is often not one we choose." but one God chooses for us. I'm just going to read it again because it is the impetus for what we're going to talk about today. John Bloom again, Desiring God. The neighbor we're called to love is often not one we choose, but one God chooses for us. Now let's talk about that for a minute because... That's a big deal. We need to understand today that God is sovereign over our lives. And if we believe that, and if we are believers, that means that God is intimately involved in every little detail of our lives. In other words, there are no accidents when it comes to a Christian's life. God is orchestrating things and and He either allows or He directly intervenes and orchestrates things to be in our lives. Which means this, the people who are in our lives are there for a reason. God is sovereign over the people that that ends up in our lives. He either allows it or He orchestrates it, and we need to remember that. So God ultimately chooses our neighbors. Now the reason that's hard for us is because as people, we are addicted to the idea of choice. We love to choose. In fact, in our lives, we have choices everywhere. We have more choices than anyone has ever had. We're a generation that has more choices at our fingertips. In fact, sometimes we are paralyzed by our amount of choices. When I was a kid in the 80s and 90s, we just had a few channels on our TV, literally. I mean, as a kid, I, we still had an antenna at our house. So I would literally, I don't know if any of you joining us right now remember these days when you would run outside and you would literally turn the antenna while the people inside yelled at you and let you know when the channel cleared up, guys. Okay, so... Maybe I'm dating myself there. Maybe I'm letting you know that I'm, I'm, I'm older than I, than I want to admit. But I'm just telling you, that wasn't that long ago. But now, I have like 400 channels that I can choose from on my YouTube TV, all right? And what, whatever service you use for cable or, or Internet service, you've got all these choices. The Internet's changed the game. Listen, not only that. Uh, any you you have all sorts of things that when i was a kid we didn't have a lot to choose from when it came to restaurants in our area now there's every cuisine you can imagine in almost every town in america that you can go and choose we have choices we have geographical mobility now more than ever just a few generations ago, most people stayed in their town and they didn't go far. But now people move all over the place. Technology has allowed families to stay in touch with one another so they don't feel this need to be right next to each other. So we move all the time. So now we have, we choose, are we going to go to this town or that? And we think through, well, if we live in this city, what kind of amenities are there? And what kind of fun things are there to do? And all of these things. We are addicted to choice. We don't want someone choosing for us. We want to choose. We are consumers. And more than ever, at any time in history, we are consumer-driven people and we love our choices. And the choices are there. Like you don't just go buy an album now. You you just jump on Spotify and it is almost unbelievable the amount of music that's available for you to listen to. You can listen on my Spotify account. I literally have curated my own playlist and I have things that I listen to when I study. I like violin and uh, I've got a musical past, so I love violin and piano while I'm studying, but then I want some good, you know, some good upbeat music. Uh, If I'm doing other things, if I'm cooking at the house, there's certain things I like like jazz. If I'm hanging out by the pool, I'm going to listen to uh, some Jack Johnson because I like beachy music. I just have choices. And you do as well. You have tons and tons of choices. And that's why it's hard for us when it comes to the people in our lives to realize that God is choosing some things for us. God is making some choices for us when it comes to our neighbors. And so in this story, what we see in the Good Samaritan story is that the Samaritan and the Jew would have never chosen each other. That's what you need to understand. If, let's just talk about the guy that got beat up. The Jewish man who is beaten up and laying by the road dying, he would have never chosen for his rescuer to be a Samaritan. Remember, the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other, viscerally hated each other. As you can see in this story, the the Jewish scribe could not bring himself to admit to Jesus that the one who was a true neighbor was a Samaritan. He just said, the one who showed him mercy. He didn't even want to say the words. Remember, the Jews called the Samaritans basically animals. All right? They believed they were a half-breed race. And the Samaritans were no more kind to the Jews. They hated the Jews and wouldn't worship, didn't, didn't want to worship anywhere near them, didn't want to worship like them. Since the Jews believed in the entire Old Testament, the Samaritans were like, well, that has to be wrong. So they only believed in the first five books. On and on and on it went. They hated each other. So isn't it interesting that in the story, the choice is not up to the Samaritan or the Jew. There was a sovereign act that brought those two together. And so trust me, when the Jew opened his eyes, and this is a Samaritan taking care of him, that would not have been his choice. And when the Samaritan saw that it's a Jew laying in the road, this is, listen, you got to understand when that Samaritan rescued that Jew on the road that day, this is a man, this Jew had probably talked trash about that Samaritan his whole life. He, he knew that. He knew what it meant to rescue a Jew. That is what was going on here. And yet we have this beautiful, incredible story. Listen to the words of theologian G.K. Chesterton. He said this about this issue we're talking about. He said, We make our friends. So in other words, we choose. We choose and make our friends. We make our enemies. But God makes our neighbors. The old scriptural language showed so sharp of wisdom when it spoke, not of one's duty towards humanity in general, but one's duty towards one's neighbor. The duty towards humanity may often take the form of some choice, which is personal or even pleasurable, but we have to love our neighbor because he is there. A much more alarming reason for a much more serious operation. He, our neighbor, is the sample of humanity which is actually given to us. Remember, that's the point. See, we're all about choice. We, the, the, the lawyer and we often think that, that Jesus is teaching us how to identify our neighbors. And no, no, it's about us being a neighbor. So let's talk about now, what neighbors are we talking about? What neighbors are we talking about that Jesus means for us to love and they're the ones we didn't choose? Well, there are several areas in our lives where there are people in our lives where we really did not choose them. God chose them for us. Let's talk about that for a moment right now. The neighbor... We didn't choose. So it's really important that we grab onto this concept because it's going to be very, very practical in our lives because there's people in our lives we didn't choose and those are at the top of the list of who Jesus wants us to be a neighbor to. And who's the first ones? Well, the first ones I want to talk to you about, the first neighbors you didn't choose would be your family. You didn't choose your family. God chose your family for you. And this is important for you to understand. Because often some of the hardest people to be a neighbor to is our family. Many of you probably right now are thinking, oh, I never thought about my parents being my neighbors or my siblings being my neighbors or my cousins or my grandparents or my uncles and aunts or my adopted family or my guardians. The people that are in your life that are your family unit, those are your neighbors. And often, most often, almost always, you did not choose them. And a little thing for you, often they didn't choose you sometimes, right? Just depends on the situation. But what you need to understand is this is important for you to get because for us as believers, we need to start looking around and going, well, well, who has God put in my life? And I know that I'm supposed to be a neighbor to them. The first ones would be your family, And often they're the the hardest ones. Often we will be more kind to our friends and let them off the hook for all kinds of stuff, but we are more harsh and demanding on our families. And we can all easily fall victim to this. Where as young adults, we begin to criticize our parents. We begin to see everything that they've ever done wrong. It's really easy to do that. But the Bible cautions us against that. In fact, there's a lifelong command in the Bible about how children are to to treat their parents. It says this in Exodus 20, 12, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord God is giving you. Honor your father and your mother. Now that is for anyone who has a father or mother, and that would include your guardians. That would include people who are your family over you. That's what this means. So what that's saying is, the Bible's telling you that your whole life you're supposed to honor. Now let me help you understand. Honoring father and mother does not mean always agreeing with father and mother. And it changes throughout your life. So to be a good neighbor, the Bible uh, teaches us to our parents or to our families, our immediate families, does not mean that you always agree, but it does mean you always honor. Now, what does honor look like? Well, honor changes throughout your lifetime in how it looks and how it's demonstrated. If you are a kid still, if you're listening to this and you're a kid or you're a teenager and you're still in the house, your parents still have that kind of authority over you, then the Bible teaches that honoring your parents looks like obedience. Obeying your parents is the way you honor your parents. But then there's a huge part of us, and maybe most of us watching this today, that you are out of the house. Your parents aren't actually directly over you anymore. You are on your own. Maybe you're a college student, or maybe you are young and married, or maybe you're in your 50s and 60s and you have elderly parents. I don't know what your situation is, but if you still have parents or guardians, step-parents, whoever was over you, listen, the Bible teaches you you should still honor them. And honoring your parents looks different. When you're 28 years old, you're not still uh, obligated to obey your parents the way you were when you were a child. Because... You may disagree with them, but what the Bible teaches you now, it's really even harder, is that you are to honor your parents. And what does honor look like? It changes. Like, it means you show respect. You show deference. It doesn't mean you always do exactly what they want you to do. It doesn't mean that you always agree with them. But it does mean that, hey, you treat them like a neighbor and you are actively loving them. Listen, all the rules of loving humans applies to, and we forget this, to our families. In fact, it applies first to our families. So whether you're a child still in the home, look around you and go, you know what, these are the people God's already put in my life and I need to start there. I need to start there. And and let me just tell you, it's easier, I'm telling you, it's easier to get on a plane and go across the world and be a good neighbor to people that you don't even know often than to be the neighbor God's called you to be to your parents to your grandparents to your aunts to your uncles to your cousins to your siblings that can be hard let's talk about siblings for a minute hey if you have brothers and sisters step brothers and sisters or cousins people that are close to you in your life in that way so they're not over you but they're kind of parallel to you they're alongside you you know what you didn't choose them always and and lord knows when it comes to siblings oftentimes you go i would have never chosen these people and that's the whole point you may not, if, if, if you had the choice, have chosen your parents and you may not have, if you would have had the choice, chosen the brothers and sisters and cousins that God put in your life. But He put them there. And see, we believe as Christians that He's sovereign over all things. There's nothing He's not over. So this means there's a sacredness to the people He's put in your life. And so uh, John Bloom, the guy that wrote the article that I read in Desiring God, he makes the point that our families are God-designed laboratories for us to learn how to be Christians, for us to learn how to be neighbors. Like, your siblings are hard to deal with on purpose. That's why God put them in your life. And you know what? Your parents aren't perfect. And, And yeah, they've made mistakes. And yeah, they made mistakes raising you. And some of you, it was a really bad situation. And it's going to be even harder for you to figure out a way to honor somehow the people in your lives. Remember, honoring does not mean you agree. Honor does not mean that you say that everything that ever has happened was okay. No, none of those things are requirements to honor and care for. And when it comes to your brothers and sisters, do you you love the people that God has put in your life? Because those are your first neighbors. These are the neighbors that we didn't choose. These are the neighbors that we probably, maybe, would not have chosen if we would have had the choice. very important for us to understand. Now, here, here's some other things that you need to know. Because you need to know also that if you're a parent or a guardian, your children, that's right, are your neighbors. Your children are your neighbors. And the thing about kids, and I'm raising kids right now, is your kids change. Like some stages of your kids' development, you'll be like, oh, I love, this is awesome, I love this kid. Other times you're like, what happened to my kid, right? They change, they grow. And, and what you need to remember, when you are dealing with your own kids your own children, the, these humans that God has sovereignly put into your life. Because, listen, you may have chosen to have kids or you may have chosen to adopt kids. Or you may have chosen to become a foster parent. But you did not choose. You didn't have any control over the kind of personalities these kids would have, the kind of choices sometimes they'll make. You, did, you didn't choose that, did you? And that is why it is the ultimate laboratory for you to learn how to be like God Because we have all rebelled against God and yet God has loved us, been patient with us, cared for us. This is huge. So when it comes to our kids, do we treat our kids with the same neighboring rules that that we would do for others? And often, listen, often we get real loosey-goosey with the people that are closest to us. Often we'll treat the waitress at the restaurant better than we'll treat our own families, our own kids. So parents, guardians, do you see your kids as the first laboratory around you to act out the rules of being a neighbor? Are you kind? Are you loving? Are you sacrificial? Do you try to assume the best? That is really hard to do. And, and we go to the Scriptures again in Psalm 127.3. It says this, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. That word heritage also means a gift. It means that your kids are a gift to you and not just on their easy days. Not just on the days when they're being fun and and cool and where they're being honoring to you and easy to deal with. No, your kids are a gift to you for many reasons. But one of the reasons is that they are hard to deal with sometimes. And you are hard to deal with too. And God loves you and He wants you to learn how to be a parent the way He is to you. Because while you're raising your kids, God's raising you. That's the gospel edge of parenting. And so do we see our neighbors, when we, we think neighbor, we think, yes, I want to be a neighbor to people. I want to be kind of this person at the ballpark and this person that I work with and that person over there. But did you realize your first neighbors is your family that you didn't choose and then your kids that maybe you chose to have but chose to adopt, chose to foster parent, but you didn't choose how they are. You didn't choose all of that. And yet, this is the laboratory. And let me, let me tell you another huge laboratory for us to understand about neighboring. If you are in a marriage, your first neighbor now is your spouse. Let's talk about how neighboring applies to being a spouse right now. So it may be hard for you to imagine and maybe you've never thought about it, but your first neighbor, if you are a married person, is actually your spouse And all of the things that Jesus is telling us, we need to go and do. Remember, He he tells the story about the Samaritan taking care of this Jewish man. And with all of that context, He looks at that lawyer and says, Now you go do likewise. Now what you need to understand is the Samaritan, it was costly. And that's the thing we need to understand. Loving in a neighborly way is costly. It's going to cost you. And it's going to be hard and it's going to be sacrificial. And we're going to end this day today in a few moments talking about exactly what it costs. But it is costly to love your family that you didn't choose growing up for your whole life. It's it's going to cost you. It's going to be hard at times. It's it's going to take more out of you than you thought it would. Hey, it's going to cost you. It's going to be hard. It's going to be sacrificial for you at times be a neighbor to your kids as they go through their stages and grow up the goods and the bads. And let me tell you what, if you want a great marriage, you need to start treating your spouse as your first neighbor. And, and listen, the rules of neighboring apply to our marriages. Ephesians 4.32 says this, Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another. And, and, and maybe your question there would be, Well, why? Why do I need to be kind to my spouse? Why do I need to be tender hearted? That's a big one. Why do I need to forgive? The Bible tells you, as God in Christ has forgiven you. See, let me just say, none of us are going to sacrifice more to be a neighbor than God sacrificed to be our neighbor. And, And remember, the whole story of the Good Samaritan, like the whole Bible, points to Jesus. Jesus is ultimately the Good Samaritan. He's the greater Good Samaritan. No one's ever been a neighbor to you like God. Because I'm telling you, we have all given God every reason to pick us apart, to find everything that we've done wrong, to hold it all against us, to, to, to look into every little thing we've ever done and show how we got it wrong. And see, that's how we do our parents sometimes, and that's how we do our kids, and that is certainly how we, we do our spouses sometimes. And God did not do that to us. God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. He's been tenderhearted to us. He's been caring to us. He is good towards us. His disposition towards us has been good and sacrificial and loving. So He looks at us and He says, no, you do likewise. You be a neighbor. And it starts with our spouses. And see, being a spouse is hard. And I hear this all the time. I hear people go, man, it just it's so hard. They get married and they thought everything was going to be great. And then inevitably it's hard. And the reason he, marriage is hard is because you brought a human home with you. You didn't bring a goldfish. You know, when my kids were little, they wanted pets. And we, start, we have a beautiful dog now, Gus, but we started with fish. We had these little goldfish. And let me tell you something about goldfish. They're easy. We forgot to feed the goldfish once for like a couple of weeks. He was fine. He just figured it out. He ate algae and stuff off the rocks. Totally fine. He doesn't need you to pet him. In fact, he'd rather you not. He just wants, you know, he just hang out. Just, just, we, I remember once we forgot to clean the bowl. You couldn't hardly see the goldfish in there. He was totally fine. We put him in a cup, cleaned it out. So easy. Marriage is not easy because you did not bring just a goldfish home. Brought a human home. And humans are complex and they're hard to deal with and they're moody. And humans change over time and we're not the same people we were just a few years ago. And yeah, marriage involves all that. And that is why marriage is the ultimate laboratory for us to learn to love as God has loved us. That's why family is so important. The, the people you did not choose, God chose them for you, they are sacred because of that reason. And the kids that God has put in your life, if you're a parent or a guardian, man, they are sacred. Not just because they on their good days they're really cool and easy. No, no, it's because of what God's doing through them in your life. And your spouse is sacred. Yeah, you chose your spouse most probably. Unless you were in an arranged marriage and we don't really do those around here. But you know what you didn't choose when you married that person? You didn't choose all the things you didn't know, did you? And inevitably those pop up. You didn't choose the, the stuff about your spouse that, that inevitably comes out later that they didn't even know about themselves because life brings things at us. And we struggle. We grow. We change. We face things that we didn't, we didn't face before. And we change. We see one another react in different ways. We learn It's hard. It is complex. And it is the ultimate laboratory. Charles Spurgeon said, The anvil upon which God loves to hammer the character of men and women out is the anvil of marriage. Doesn't sound romantic, does it? There's great romance in marriage, but let me tell you what. We must be a neighbor to one another in our marriages first. Are we doing that? Are we being who God has called us to be in our marriages. Well, it's not just those places. Though. Those are very important. And I want to see us today start there because those will cost you more than anything. It'll cost you more. And remember, what the Samaritan did, let me just make clear, for this Jew, cost him greatly. Look at the money he spent and the resources. he, Everything he gave the guy was expensive. Used his own animal, his car, if you will, to take him there. Set it all up. It also was risky. He risked his own life because that was a road that you needed to move through quickly because you could get beat up on that road. Not only that, though, there were, like, the guy had just been beaten up by robbers, meaning they could still be there. And the Samaritan, instead of looking out for himself, he stops, slows the process down, takes care of the guy. It's unbelievable. He risked his own life and so much, he inconvenienced himself. It was not convenient. See, neighboring is not convenient. It's not easy. And all of those things are costly. And that's what makes it beautiful. What makes the Samaritan story beautiful is that it was costly and that it was risky and that it was inconvenient. And that's what makes beautiful families when we love each other when it's hard, when we're different. God just throws us in with siblings and moms and dads and grandparents and then spouses and our own kids and we have different personalities and different ways. We look at things. We like different foods. We want to do different things. It's hard. It's messy. And God goes, yep, that's exactly what I designed for you because I'm going to teach you how to be like me. What a gift. What a sacred gift. But all of that all of that points us to one more that I want to talk about. Now let's talk about the community that you did choose, according to John Bloom and Desiring God, but often we want to unchoose it. Let's talk about the church. So finally today, as we talk about how to be a neighbor, let's talk about another thing that, that we do choose. And, and man, this is a big deal because when, when you decide where you're going to go to church, unless you stayed in the church that you grew up in and it's the one your parents... Uh, had you in, that's great. But at some point, you did make a choice. You chose to stay there, right? At some point, you did have a choice. You could have gone to a different church. So you, in a sense, have chosen your community. And if Three Circle Church is your church community, then you chose at some point. But what often happens, we're so consumer-driven, people jump around churches. And, And I could do an entire teaching today on why that is dangerous and unhealthy. But one reason it is, and today we'll stay focused on the neighbor principle, is to jump around and treat church like consumerism is to not be neighborly. And yes, the neck before we get on planes and go everywhere, before we be a neighbor to the people that we don't even know or the people that are hard to be neighbors to in our, in our communities and all that, we start with the families God gave us, the kids God gave us, the spouse that God gave us, and then the church that maybe we chose, but when we get into a church community, God is sovereign over that. And let me tell you what, we said that our homes are laboratories to be neighbors. That's where we learn to be a neighbor with our spouse and our kids. And, and we, and we learn to be neighbors with our extended families, parents, grandparents. But we learn to be neighbors in the big laboratory known as the local church. And once again, just like our families in our homes, churches are messy. And complex, you know. We have this romantic idea about the early church. I hear that a lot. We just want to be a church like the early church. The early church had it going on. We want our church to look like the early church. Are you sure about that? Have you checked out? Have you read the New Testament? Let me give you a little taste of what early church was like. Paul was writing uh, to the Corinthians, the church of Corinth, in First Corinthians eleven seventeen to twenty two. He listen what he says. for in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Do <laughs> you hear this? This is the church. Verse 22, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. That's the Apostle Paul to a church, a big church. And he's telling them, you guys are a mess. church gets messy just like family gets messy and marriage gets messy and messy doesn't always mean bad. No, messy means life. Messy means human. We are messy. And so what I would say to you is that we need to deeply commit to our families that God chose for us. We need to start honoring our parents and our our grandparents and our siblings and we need to do that in understanding the sacredness of the neighbors God's chosen for us and then when it comes to our kids we may have chose to have kids adopt them or foster care but one thing we didn't choose is how our kids are and we need to learn to be neighbors that's the laboratory and our spouses we need to learn that but we need to learn it in church you and I we need to be committed to our churches now is there a time to leave a church leaving a ch- yes there is If your church becomes so theologically in error that they're not teaching the Bible and not teaching the truth, then that might be a time for you to make a a change. And I totally get that. If there's abuse going on in the church, those types of things, absolutely. If there's leadership issues that are unbiblical, yeah, I get that. But to leave a church and change a church because you don't like the style or you don't really care for the people or you're just not fitting in with the folks and after a couple of years you just think there's a better option, that's not being a neighbor to your church. See, the church is a great laboratory. In my family, all three of my kids like to eat different things. They like different types of music. And yet, it's a laboratory for us to learn to love each other. Church is the same way. You know, on every Sunday morning in a church, people like some of the songs, they don't like others. Some are old, some are younger. Some people would rather us do more hymns. Some would rather us never do a hymn. Some have more Pentecostal backgrounds. Some have Methodist backgrounds. Some have Presbyterian backgrounds. Just think about how that is, right? Even when it comes to our online broadcast, some people would rather us just take our live feed from our stage on Sunday morning and just stick it out there. And others of you really love what we do right now with the pre-recorded. There's always opinions. And and often what we will do is we'll become consumers when it comes to church. We'll go, you know what, I'm going to shop around. Find something better for me. And you know what? You are shortchanging what God's trying to do in your life through the church because the church is a laboratory where we learn to be neighbors. Before we can be neighbors to the world, we've got to learn to be neighbors to each other. And see, the Samaritan did not choose the Jew that day. And the Jew certainly did not choose the Samaritan. God chose them for each other. It was God's plan. See, God was doing something amazing. Don't you think... That situation changed both the Samaritan and the Jews' life. We have to understand what the Bible is teaching us. See, we need to remember when it comes to the church, just like our families, our parents, our spouses, our children. The church is sacred too. The people that walk into the church, the people that are a part of your small group, this community we call Three Circle... Every one of them sacred. Even the ones that you think are hard to deal with, the ones you think are weird, the ones you wish would change, the ones that aren't just like you, they are sacred. Sacred to God. John 13, 35 tells us this, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John Bloom again in Desiring God reminds us that the mark of the church has never been that we all look alike or that we all uh, like the same things or that we all agree. Neighboring doesn't mean agreeing. Neighbor doesn't always mean affirming. What it does mean is love and honor. So let me give you four things that I think are required really quickly for you, for all of these groups I just mentioned that are hard to be neighbors to, that maybe you didn't realize were your first neighbors. These are your first neighbors. We got to get this right first. What's four things we need to do? Let me tell you those right now. So four things we're going to need to do to be a neighbor in these arenas that I just mentioned, these laboratories of our families God chose for us growing up, but for the rest of our lives, our kids, our spouses, and our church. First of all, it's going to require, listen, it's going to require patience. One thing it's going to require is that you be patient. Oftentimes we pick one another apart. We're really hard on each other. We don't assume the best. We're very critical of one another. We find little things that are wrong with each other constantly. And the Bible says we must not do that. Love is patient. We have to be patient with one another. we got to give each other some breathing room. we got to also, in order to do that, remember that we ourselves are hard to deal with. When I, when I find that people around me in my church, my kids, my spouse, or my family are hard to deal with, I need to remember... I'm hard to deal with. Be patient. Secondly, this is huge. Give attention. Give attention. One of the biggest ways you can love well and be a neighbor to these areas is to is to focus on people, to give them your attention. Like remember that everyone around you is worthy of your interest. Your parents, be interested in their lives. Show interest in if you're an adult now, Call your parents and, and see what's going on with them and, and love them and see the sacredness and, and, and how wonderful they are. See them as real humans. Be interested in their lives. They were interested in yours if they were good parents. Be interested in theirs. Figure out what's going on with them. That is a great way to neighbor. That's what the Samaritan did, but we don't realize that's for the people right around us. Be, be interested and engaged with the people at your church. Figure, don't just show up and leave. To find a community to get in and care about them and call them and check on them and find out what's going on. How are they doing in life? What are they interested in? What are they like? People are incredible. Get to know them. Sh- give attention to and show interest in your kids. Don't just feed them and make sure they stay alive. What are your kids into? Notice the changes that are going on in their lives. Don't treat your 13-year-old like he was nine still. He's changed. He's different. She's changed. She's different. She's different. Get to know them. Show interest in their world, in their lives. These are hard things to do. It's what's required of neighbors. Be interested in your spouse. Don't wake up one day and just say, Well, this is the person God gave me. We're just doing life, keeping the kids alive, keeping the bills paid. When's the last time you looked at your spouse and thought, This is the most incredible person in the world. And be interested in them. What are they interested in? What's going on in their lives? Showing attention and giving interest, and being engaged. Listen, a huge part of being a neighbor. Thirdly, you got to be willing to pay a price. Neighboring comes with a price tag. It is going to cost you guys. Listen, it's going to cost you. It's not free. It's hard. And that is good. That's good. God meant it. God designed it that way. It's going to cost you. It costs the Samaritan. It's going to cost you. It's going to be hard. It's not always comfortable. It's not always easy. You're not always going to get what you want. Sometimes you want to just get it off your chest and sometimes you just don't need to. Neighboring is hard. And then finally, finally, fourth, in order for you to be a neighbor, you're going to have to always remember that that while God is calling you to be a neighbor, He's been a neighbor to you. That's why that verse says we should be kind to each other and loving and we should do all this because that is what God has done for us. We do our neighboring under the shadow of the cross of Christ because you and I will never out-neighbor God. You're never going to sacrifice more to love these areas that I mentioned today. Family, kids, spouse, and church. You're never going to give up more to be the neighbor you're supposed to be to those groups than God gave up to be your neighbor. So today, will you be the neighbor God's called you to be? Not across the world. Not to the people that are at the ballpark and at the school yeah that's true too but today we're bringing it home will you be a neighbor to the people that are right next to you your families your church your spouse your home your kids will you be that neighbor